This is Anabaptist Perspectives. Today I'm here in Ephrata, Pennsylvania with Josh Good. And Josh is the principal here at Ephrata Mennonite School where we're filming this. And he's been involved in education for a number of years. And today we're going to take a look at his journey and some of his background and, and how he got to where he is today. So, Joshua, good to have you here. Yeah, it's good, good to be, be talking here. with you. So, tell us just a little bit about your background and some of your life journey. Uh, I was watching a video of yours that you had put out recently online that that took us through some of where you used to be and and where you are now. So, just fill in our listeners on uh, some of those details of your life. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I have been here at Ephraim Mennonite School just finished my fifth year, so going into year six as a principal. Uh, I have been in education uh, for a while. Uh, prior to coming here, I was in Brooklyn, New York in the public school system, so not, not the Christian education world, but was there for uh, about 13 years as a teacher uh, for a while, and then principal uh, for a few years, and then ended there as assistant superintendent. Uh, God, I felt like, was really moving in uh, my life in many ways to sort of make that transition. We had a really good experience in Brooklyn. Uh, but through some people that spoke into my life and uh, through some, some uh, events that happened, my wife and I began to pray about what you know, the Lord would have next for us. And we had three children at that time. And the door opened uh, to make the move into Christian education is something that I had always kind of wistfully looked uh, looked on at as something that I would like to like to be a part of and be a part of the discipleship and the spiritual kind of teaching angle, something that I had missed in the, in the public education sector. So we moved we moved here. Uh, my wife, as I've spoken, her name is Tanya, and she is from Southern Indiana. So before we lived in Brooklyn, I lived in Southern Indiana. Uh, Montgomery, Indiana, small, small little Midwest kind of typical town uh, for a few years. There I was in the construction industry. Uh, and prior to that, I grew up in the Lynchburg, Virginia area. I uh, lived there from 1979 to about 2000. I grew up there, went to church there, had a great experience at uh, Bethel Mennonite Church, and went to uh, college at Liberty University, did my undergraduate uh, work there. And prior to that, I was from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so I kind of did the, the full circle. Started out here as a little shaver, and then rural Virginia, a small town, middle America, and Brooklyn for 13, 14 years, and now here for five years. Great. So. And you mentioned Liberty University, and you mentioned uh, doing some construction and then moving into education. Did you have an interest in education before you uh, were in Indiana? Is that what you went to Liberty University for? Or? I did. I always enjoyed school, so that was uh, you know, that was kind of a pull. And because I enjoyed both the learning part of school and the social part, and I had some friends uh, from our community there that that went to college, so it didn't feel like it was something unheard of. Because of that, I wanted to go to college, so I went. I always enjoyed history, so I thought, well, you know, I'll study history and be a teacher. And I started out in the kind of teacher training program. I got a little burned out on the teacher education courses. Uh, I don't know. It just didn't, felt a little soft to me. 
And so I just kind of dumped that and just went straight, went with a straight history major. And I had a background, like, like many Mennonites do, in, in construction work. So I worked, you know, as with my dad and with some other people from the church while I was going to college, and I learned some things. So when I moved to Indiana, it was very easy to kind of find a job there and, uh, and kind of figure out, okay, what is my next play kind of going to be? And I got married during that time, and where you know, do my wife and I see us kind of landing? So sort of kind of happenstance, I guess you could say. Uh, I mean, divine direction is another way of saying it. But I was uh, I was kind of looking around on the internet for some job possibilities and whatnot, and I discovered a program they had in New York City at that time uh, called the New York City Teaching Fellows. And basically, if you agreed to teach in a hard-to-staff school uh, in the inner city, they would pay for you to get your master's degree. You know, you could move forward from there. So it seemed like a great idea to me. Uh, I talked my wife into it, and I didn't handle that the way I should have in hindsight. something that we've kind of had to work through. But we ended up moving uh, to Country Bumpkins in the New York City. And I really liked it right away and, and had a really good run there. I learned a lot. Uh, for my wife, it was, it was harder. And it took about you know, four or five years to really kind of settle in. And we had to kind of work through some things in the process there. But that was the sort of path back, back to education. Uh, and I just, I really, you know, I really enjoy teaching. I enjoy the, like I said, the, the social part of school. And now, you know, working and thinking about school from a discipleship angle, it's, it's really been exciting and, and been good. I care about the learning. Uh, in my mind, learning uh, is something that we do because we're made in the image of God. And I don't think it poses any threat to the conservative Anabaptist vision. I think we, uh, I'm, I'm excited about, about teaching kids and raising a generation of leaders and people that can thoughtfully articulate the Anabaptist vision. So that's what I see my work here at Ephraim Mennonite School uh, being about. So let's back up, though, from, from where we are today and, and your journey in education. And I want to talk about your growing up years and the formation of how you view the world and politics. And uh, that's really what we're interested in, in discussing here today and exploring. And I I'm interested in what was the foundation uh, of that journey that you've had in voting and politics and things in that realm? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I come from a family that, that was very interested in politics. And one of, you know, one of uh, my early memories uh, you know, around politics in particular was 1984, and I was seven years old at the time. And I remember laying on the living room floor, we had a little box radio, and listening to uh, Ronald Reagan debate Walter Mondale uh, with my father, who, who listened to politics. And then a few days later, we did it over again. At that time, the Democrats had nominated a woman, Geraldine Ferraro, uh, who was debating George Bush, senior, of course. So, and I generally, I would say, have, have fond memories about that. It was something that that I took an interest in, and uh, you know, I can remember some of the exact things that Reagan has said in that in that debate. And then, you know, four years later, kind of did it again. This time, Bush and I think Dukakis, and again, I remember listening to the debates, you know, with my family. So my father was was politically 
uh, pretty attuned. And I learned uh, right away that the Republicans were the right party with a capital R. And, you know, we wanted Reagan to win. And then we wanted Bush to win. Uh, and that, that would have been echoed a little broader than, than just my family. I would have heard comments from other adults in the church that I was at that kind of articulated, you know, a sense of hopefulness. We hope the Republicans, the Republicans win. Certainly there would have been, you know, generally speaking, values, you know, around, uh, uh, it was kind of a hunting culture, so we don't want to lose our guns uh, and this type of thing. Uh, I think other kind of components of the Republican platform that registered was this idea, you know, people shouldn't be lazy, people need to work hard, and too many people, you know, are uh, on food stamps or whatever, unemployment, they should get jobs. So that, that uh you know, and then, of course, the abortion factor was something that was in play. Uh, so it, so it, from very early, you know, when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, there was this, this kind of s- sympathy and, and cheering from the sidelines for, you know, for various political factions. I remember in 1991, it was a big kind of Supreme Court fight with Clarence Thomas, and I listened to NPR uh, to hours of that kind of confirmation battle. And then, of course, also in 1991-ish there, you had, you know, Persian Gulf the first time. And I remember, you know, going to school and it was a U.S. news there and there was a Tomahawk cruise missile like shooting away from a ship and people were talking and it was a patriotic fervor ran pretty high. It was around that time that, you know, I started asking adults in my life, well, you know, wait a second here, why don't we vote? Like we're listening to the debates and we know who we want to win, so why, why don't we vote? And I asked my dad, I think, first, and he used to say things like, well, I, I could vote. I don't think it's necessarily a sin, but, uh, you know, I choose not to because they might ask us to go to war at some point. And then if I voted for him, did I vote for the war? So that was kind of his standard response. When I was in vacation Bible school, I don't know, 8th to ninth grade, I got into an argument with uh, one of the brothers from my church, Delvin Yoder. I, I thought Christians should vote. I mean, we, we knew who we wanted to win. And he was very polite and respectful, and I, and I really appreciated what he said to, said to me at that point. Uh, but I started to, you know, to kind of wonder, you know, well, why, why wouldn't we, you know, why wouldn't we, we vote if, if we know, you know, this is kind of the way we want to see, see the country go. So then, uh, you know, when I went to, I went to Liberty University then, and it was a very kind of natural transition. I started there in 1996, so I'd have been 19 at the time. Of course, 1996, another election year, uh, and in this case, uh, been Clinton and Bush, Bush Sr. And, you know, to, to back up a little bit, you know, Liberty University you know, came out of the 1970s. Uh, it was a very famous theologian, Francis Schaeffer, and he wrote this book, How Then Shall We Live? And this book was, you know, hugely influential in the evangelical world. Uh, and trickled into, of course, some of the, the Mennonite settings. But the gist of it was Christians need to work at, you know, engage with, I think is the language that he would often use, engage with culture directly, secular culture, in an attempt to kind of purify or Christianize it and make it better. And Jerry Falwell was you know, senior who started Liberty University, was heavily influenced by this book, came out in 1976. And he had the, uh, you know, the epiphany that what we need is a religious kind of voting block that inserts itself into culture, like Francis Schaeffer kind of outlined 
uh, in his book, and then we'll have the opportunity to kind of purify and make the culture a, a better place. And then the issues were abortion. That was a huge one. Pornography was big uh, in the 70s. Uh, homosexuality was just being an issue there in the 80s. So he, he founds Moral Majority, founds Liberty University. That was a few years earlier. And I remember when I went to Liberty, hearing him speak, and he would often use this analogy. He said, look, what we need is, as Christians, for too long, we've, you know, politics is like a football game. We've just been, this is what he used to say, we used, we're just in the bleachers cheering. I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's what we were. In my men, we were just in the bleachers cheering, but we didn't have a team in the field. He said, what we need is a team in the field. Jerry Falwell. So he said that, you know, moral majority and this Christian voting block, we need Christian politicians and we need a voting block uh, in the field to be our football team. And that's, you know, that's how we can affect, you know, positive change in society. And so, you know, at, at Liberty, it was you know, very patriotic. They brought in, when I was there, Dan Quayle, who would have been a former vice president. Uh, he spoke. And I remember the I was sitting there in convocation and adulation, and uh, one brother got me, and he was pumping both fists. I thought, wow, these people are like really into this. A few years later, Newt Gingrich, who at that time was uh, Speaker of the House, I think, he came, and uh, you know, I studied history there, so you know, the version I got of history was really the white Protestant version. Uh, you know, the United States is basically a Christian nation founded on uh, Judeo-Christian Western values, and uh, because of that, God has kind of blessed this culture. And uh, yes, Jesus is Lord, but you know the government is the minister of God, as outlined there in Romans 13. And therefore, we participate in politics as rightly we should, uh, as a Christian nation, the leader of the world. They would hold uh, you know rallying campaigns to get people registered to vote. That so we need you students to vote in Lynchburg. It was kind of Lynchburg was kind of a swing city in the state. There was a lot of Democrats there, like Blue Dog Democrats, Southern Democrats, as well as of course this new new breed of Republicans. Uh, I had professors, you know, in as I alluded to in my religion courses that were influenced by Schaefer and his his way of thinking about you know about society. And then on the history side, as I mentioned, uh, I had a very, one of my best professors, a very interesting guy. Uh, I loved his class, but he was like a hardcore right-wing Republican, kind of lost cause person. He thought secession was constitutional. Like he went like all out into this thing. And he was, he was a very entertaining uh, you know, guy, and he was very influential in the way I thought at that time. So. So by the time I graduated, uh, you know, I was convinced, I forgot to mention this, even when I was in high school then, I wrote an essay in my junior, senior year of why Christians should vote. And I made the argument, you know, Paul used his citizenship to dodge some beatings and to go to Rome. So by the time I got out of Liberty, I was convinced Christians should vote and, uh, and be involved, kind of as Schaefer sort of laid out. I actually bought his book. It's still on my bookshelf, How Then Shall We Live? and was ready to, you know, be, be actively involved. And the one kind of hitch was uh, I belonged to Bethel Mennonite Church, and, you know, they had church standards, and you weren't supposed to vote. I've always been more of a spirit of the law guy rather than a letter of the law, but this was too much. Like, I couldn't bring myself to vote at that point, you know, while I was at Liberty or right there at 2000. I guess I had taken the covenant agreement seriously, and I felt like I, I can't vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, as long as I'm a member of this, you know, up, up to this point. 
even though my position would have been that Christians should have voted at that time. So that's a little bit kind of the way, you know, my early experiences kind of fed me into the Liberty University shoot, and, uh, and they were very influential. And I left there really feeling like, you know what, Christians should be involved in politics, uh, and, and they should vote. So you said in your, your video that you posted a few weeks ago, which we'll link in the, the video description here and in the podcast, but you say that you came to realize the, the emptiness of politics and you've sort of come full circle. So how was that process of going from writing essays about how Christians should be involved in politics and your, your views coming out of Liberty University to the point where you are today, which is certainly not at that point, that place. Yeah, well, I I think I would say at first it was a long process, so it's not something that that happened quickly, more happened kind of by by degrees. Uh, I think if I I were to start, you know, and name kind of one principal thing, is like once I came to really adopt a you know, a Christianity that's centered on Jesus and is Christocentric is a word we sometimes use, uh, and embrace sort of a, a, a kingdom Christian mindset or this idea uh, that Jesus came uh, to found his kingdom, to start his kingdom here. That really then was the, the leverage point that, that moved me kind of away from you know, nationalism and, and the nation state. And that, that push really came from an influence of people in my life uh, through, I guess you could say, discipleship. Uh, there were kind of two brothers there in New York, uh, Harlan Barnhart, Dwight Nisley, that, that really uh, came from a kingdom sort of Christian perspective and from a Christocentric uh, perspective. So I used, to, I used to argue a lot uh, with Harlan, and you know, what maybe he didn't know at the time is I was listening as you know, as we talked about things, along with that, I was I had gotten some other arguments uh, with this guy Hans Mask uh, from Kansas. Partly out of an internet argument I had with him, he started a discussion platform, Menno Discuss. And on Menno Discuss, I uh, had the opportunity to go back and forth with people like Dan Ziegler, Wayne Chesley, and many others that articulated a Christocentric. Uh, version of Christianity that was much different from the evangelical Protestant uh, version that I'd uh, heard at Liberty and pretty much adopted at Liberty University. Uh, Faith builders, I think, played a role. I would, from afar, uh, read some of their work. I read uh, Melvin Lehman's essay, would listen to the talks, the colloquies he had, Steve Brubaker and the Souders and and others. I was reading some of Dean Taylor's and listening to some of his messages. My mother uh, had been following charity for a while, so I would second or third hand read some of the remnant and, and listen to, to some of the messages. Uh, and then, you know, later when the Followers of the Way people, uh, Finney, Kerville, and company came along, uh, I bought his book, King Jesus Claims His Church. While that was happening, I was also kind of you know, continuing to study and learn history and working in, you know, a very liberal New York City in the Department of Education. Uh, I was exposed to a lot of other historians, people that had a different perspective. I certainly worked with a, a number of people of color, people from different nationalities, and kind of hearing uh, their stories and their perspective 
uh, on you know American history and, and world history and uh, you know how how other people experience the guns of the empire is the way I sometimes say it with the empire being the United States. It really led me to kind of reevaluate the sort of Protestant uh, Liberty University narrative of of the United States being basically a Christian nation uh, founded on Judeo-Christian values that's you know blessed by God and uh, and you know we need to do our part in advancing that by you know electing electing Christians. Uh, some other books, you know, David Berceau, I have been following for a while. Of course, he has his book, In God We Don't Trust. I think it's the title of that one. Uh, Greg Boyd came out with a book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, I think, right around uh, one of the elections, either 2004 or 2008, I forget uh, which one it was there. And he makes many similar arguments to David Berceau. So, so on the history side, uh, I really started to kind of reevaluate this kind of story that I'd heard, you know, from Liberty, and uh, and I really got kind of firsthand experience from people uh, who represented ethnicities uh, and groups groups of people that that had had very negative experiences with the United States. So, so putting those two things together, you know, over the course of about you know ten, twelve, thirteen years, I really started to move, started to move, started to move. And uh, it eventually kind of landed, uh, you know, with perhaps, I, I don't fully agree yet with, with everybody, which is no surprise, but perhaps kind of melted a lot of those things together. But, but I'm at a place where I consider myself an apologist, if you will, for, for kingdom Christianity, for a Christocentric view or version, if you will, of the good news. And uh, I really think that, you know, that Christocentrism and starting with Jesus, his life and his witness, and how we apply that, uh, how his life and witness, his teachings and his death and resurrection then ushered in the kingdom of God, uh, which is being built. It's come on earth and is coming uh, in, a, in a greater way in the future. But I've really adopted that and therefore have rejected the nation state as you know, being kingdoms of this world. Uh, I don't. I don't think they're sufficient for salvation of society. I don't think they're the means. Uh, I sometimes use the word to describe myself as apolitical. That's not because I, I think the ideas of a kingdom Christian don't impact polity. I think they do, uh, but we don't use the machinery of the state to do that. And foundationally, uh, we don't use violence and coercion as as the method of change. So. That's a little bit the story of how you know I moved a little bit at a time, kind of away from that. Uh, but I think the Anabaptist vision is compelling. I think uh, Kingdom Christianity is is compelling. I think there's a lot of people right now uh, that are in a spot uh, where Jesus as King is a message that really, really resonates. So your mind has been changed, and you would say that the kingdoms of this world are not where we as Christians should be investing in in voting and, yeah. and political involvement. But there are many professing Christians, and they argue, and rightfully so, that government policy affects people. Mm-hmm. And aren't we as Christians slacking if we're not helping to shape those policies? Are we not uh, supposed to be a salt and light by those means? What would you say to that, having been there at one point and now being at a different spot, how do you, how do you address those arguments and concerns. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I would say that that's a legitimate point, right? And, I, you know, I, if I haven't made this clear, I'll say it now. Uh, you know, the specific... Well, there's a continuum, right? We live in society, and at some levels, uh, we must, as a matter of living, engage uh, with politics. And you know, at a at a very, at a very sort of uh, distant level, you know, we engage through things like zoning regulations and speed limits and these sorts of things. Uh, you know, a step closer is teaching in a public school, like a system that I would have taught in. So there's a little bit of a of a range, you know, when you think about our involvement with government and and voting, you know, represents, uh, you know, a, a very kind of direct participation in that. That said, you know, good people of the world, people that I respect, do vote, and I advocate for not voting, uh, but I acknowledge that it's, it's something that people feel. Some people feel like. Well, uh, you know what, I, I wouldn't insist on it, but if someone asked me for my opinion, uh, then, you know, on this particular policy, like sometimes there's referendums, right, as an example, uh, I'm going to vote. So I, I don't know that I would right away say that, you know, is 100% off. I advocate against participating. Uh, I think, you know, I'll just add this in here. To me, once you begin to vote uh, in, you know, in 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 the political system regularly, you become, you know, part of a voting system or voting block. And with that comes political loyalties, comes political factions, comes political favors. And I actually just, very, it's very interesting, I just finished a book, uh, Mennonites, Amish, and the Civil War, Knowlton Lehman, I think, from EMU and, and Goshen College wrote it. But they, one of the things that they really look into is uh, in the Anabaptist world in the Civil War, uh, there were there was a lot of voting, particularly in Lancaster County, and the kind of fallout from that, you know, it had some benefits for them, and they were able to get some deals from Thaddeus Stevens, who was of course uh, from from Lancaster here, and he was able to get them out of some of the military service and this type of thing. At the same time, you know, Thaddeus Stevens was a Republican, and the Republicans were the War Party at that time. And there was a contingent of the population that felt like, well, here these Mennonites are voting for Thaddeus Stevens and Abraham Lincoln, the party of war, and then turning around and using that voting block to get political favors that exempt them you know, from the draft with commutation fees and this kind of thing. So it's, very, it's, it's very interesting. So I, I think the point I'm making is that once you kind of step into that, I'm not saying it, it's, it's necessarily going to happen, but... Uh, the voting allegiances and political loyalties can come very quickly. But I think at, at a foundational level, I think what I would ask to that is, well, what is it that we believe about how to change society and what, you know, what works well? And if, you know, if we believe that you know, through appropriate government policy and through effective govern, you know, government leaders, we can you know, improve the society for people, then, then it makes a lot of sense. And that, that to me is, that's really what progressivism is about. And in a sense, you know, the, the liberal, and I'm using liberal in the classical sense, idea that through the democratic process we can fix society is, is really at the, at the foundation of that. And I would even take it, when you think hard about it, you know, it's, it's a little like saying government can save society and government is the salvation, is our salvation. But, you know, government, the nations of this world, 
what I would point to is they operate kind of fundamentally, or I sometimes say it this way, they, use an, they have an ethic of violence and coercion. At the end of the day, if you know, a given policy seems good to you, might be bad to someone else, uh, say it's wealth redistribution or something like that, uh, if, you know, if, if you don't see it you know, their way, somebody with a gun is going to come to your house or to your neighbor's house and through you know, the threat of violence or violence, uh, coerce you know, a, a given behavior. But you know, that, that to me, that's the opposite of what Jesus does. It's the opposite of what Jesus did. It's the opposite of what he lived and taught. And you know, in the kingdom of God, if we have the faith to believe it, that the tools for you know, enacting kingdom policies are much more effective and more powerful are the tools of Jesus around you know, things like suffering love, and things like telling the truth all the time, things like giving rather than receiving. So I, I would encourage, you know, I would encourage us to say, look, uh, you know, governments is not the answer to, you know, to life's problems. If I believe in political solutions, then I would feel that, that pull to vote. But if we believe that the kingdom of God and Jesus uh, are the solution, then perhaps we don't feel, feel the same pull there uh, that, that we would otherwise. So like Chuck Colson, I think it was, who said, salvation doesn't come on Air Force One. And that's kind of what you're, what you're saying, where a political system isn't changing the heart of, heart of man. I, and I would even add to that, if you allow me. I, I don't think uh, the governments do, uh, of this world do a, a particularly effective job, even of, of changing realities on the ground. You know, we could talk about the economy as an example from a historical perspective. Every president wants a strong economy. And they know that they bear the responsibility, you know, whether or not uh, it's rightfully theirs. But they all want a strong economy. If they could simply, by pulling a few levers, make the economy good for everybody, they would do that. You know, Lyndon Johnson famously wanted to end poverty, right? I mean, a noble goal and use the machine of the state. Well, the poverty rates are not so dissimilar from what they were, you know, 50 years ago in the 1960s. So uh, I, th I think I think what I just am adding to it is, you know, the heart piece is an important piece, but uh, even even when it comes to the pieces on the ground in society and the ills that we face. Uh, government perhaps is not always as effective as we think they might be. There's a uh, there's another book out called The Allure of Order. But basically, you know, we, we fall into this thing where sometimes we feel like, you know, what if we had, you know, the right laws with the right enforcement, we could fix these problems. And I just, uh, I, I just don't have a high degree of faith, you know, after studying history for you know, not as long as some people, but 43 years, I just don't have a, a real high degree of confidence in the ability, uh, the good-heartedness of the nation-state to, you know, to really even effectively address things that, that aren't heart issues. If we as kingdom-focused Christians are not comfortable with voting or, or using the political system to affect change and bring about uh, good things in society, what is our responsibility? What, what can we do? What should we do? What is our, our role as kingdom Christians living here among a, a political 
system in in a nation, whatever nation we're a part of, what is our responsibility? I think that's the question, right? How then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer famously asked. Uh, I, I think, you know, my you know, my thoughts on that are we should do what Jesus did. And the power of that uh, to change the world, the power of his example and his life to change the world is just you know, immeasurable. And it's, it goes far beyond, you know, the United States. You know, the United States is strong now, but they won't be forever. The Roman Empire was really strong, you know, when Jesus was born. And there's been a myriad of other empires that have come and have went. But the kingdom of God, you know, it still stands. Here it is. The gates of hell, you know, won't prevail against it. So, so to me, that's the push. You know, there, uh, there's a pastor from Chicago. He goes by Pastor Choco. says, you know, the local church is the only hope for the world. And it's in, you know, us, you know, doing our part to, to do what Jesus did, which is lay down his life, take up his cross, you know, and serve others. And in so doing, you know, Jesus conquered death, he conquered sin, gained the hope of, of you know, what he, Jesus did, he gained immortality, gave us the hope of immortality and the resurrection of the dead. But it's in that, you know, Harlan, um, spoke about him earlier, he, he used to say it like this, he probably got it from somewhere, but, you know, the cross is not, you know, it's not only the means of salvation for society, it's the method of salvation. And it's, you know, as we follow Jesus, that's how we impact the world. As we give of ourselves rather than accumulating goods. You know, as we suffer, our capacity to love and to suffer uh, at the same, this suffering love. or not, We say non-resistance, but I'm not crazy about that word for, for other reasons. But, you know, this, this suffering love of Jesus, you know, the extent to which we can embody that. Uh, you know, Jesus talked about telling the truth. Simply not, you know, no need to swear oaths. You know, this, you know, the power in, you know, staying married to one man and one woman and, and really, you know, loving people like that in, in true ways. That's the power. So that to me is, you know, that's the answer. So rather than, you know, embracing a methodology of violent coercion and guns and laws and rules, uh, and these sorts of things, embracing, you know, the way of Jesus and the power of Jesus, picking up the cross like Jesus did, that's, that's the way that we impact the world and grow the kingdom of God. Be like Christ. Yeah. Be little, little Christ. Yeah, Christ. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Those are great perspectives, Josh, and I really appreciate you sharing those today. What would you say to people listening, people watching who maybe are where you were right after you graduated Liberty, you know, 22 years old, 23 years old. I'm sure there are people who, who hold that view of what you did then. And if you could speak directly to them or, or to your 23-year-old self, what would, you, what would you say? What would be your advice? Well, if I was speaking to my 23-year-old self, I would say, uh, you're too hard-headed and you need counseling. <laughs> uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I, when, I, when I came, kind of, and it's part, of, part of this is being young, I guess, but when, when I came out of, out of Liberty University, I had a lot of passion and, and conviction and a, and a sense of rightness, meaning like I felt like I had a, a pretty good grasp 
on uh, you know where we needed to go politically as the United States. And you know, if I were just to to say something to myself, then I would say, you know what? Just keep in mind, you know, you're 22 or 23, and yes, you've learned some things at Liberty University. You know, I affirm those things, but continue to be a learner. Here's some other perspectives you would want to read. I would recommend some books, some of the ones which we've we've already spoken about. I would encourage you know my younger self, you know, get to know people that. Uh, have you know, different perspectives uh, that may come from this at a different angle. You know, I might tell myself, uh, okay, you just finished at Liberty, maybe go to Faith Builders for a couple of years and, and see, see what their kind of impact is, or of course, Salah College is a thing now. So uh, that, I think, is what I would try to do, is I, I feel like, uh, and this is, you know, is, I give the glory to God, but I feel like I've always been a learner, like I've always wanted to learn, and if people, you know, would have said to me then, hey, why don't you take a look at this? Well, I, I mentioned some of the things, you know, my mother and others did that would give me things. And I was willing to read those, and even if I argued at the time, to kind of consider it. So that's, that's what I would say, just, you know what, continue to talk to people. Uh, read, you know, some of the, you know, some of the books around, uh, you know, Christocentrism or the, you know, the kingdom kind of Christian mindset in order to push the thinking a little bit. And then, uh, you know, if there's kind of one thing is I just would ask people to, you know, think about Jesus. What did Jesus do? Uh, what power did he tap into? And if, you know, if we're going to be Christians, uh, if we're going to be a Christian country, then I would expect uh, every politician to be like Jesus and embrace, you know, his model of nonviolent, suffering love, uh, welcoming immigrants, uh, you know, ministering to the ones that were downtrodden and the marginalized, you know, people of society. So that's that's I think what is what I would say. And people of the church are doing those things. Yes. You know, the the kingdom are. of God. Yes is not uh, restricted by any geographic right. location. And so the kingdom of God yeah. is welcoming Im immigrants. Yes, they are. Yeah, I often say, like I like to say, you know, we, we belong to a, a nation. We use this term kingdom Christian. And I get it, right? But kingdom, you know, they use the word kingdom, but in, in a sense, you know, the word kingdom just at that time in particular meant political state, right? I mean, Israel was was, you know, a political state. And, you know, we, today we might use the word nation or nation state. So I, I like to say, you know, we belong, we belong to a nation state where Jesus is president mm -hmm. and immigration is open. And, you know, we have socialism, but it's not coercive socialism. Right? This is not Marxism. This is volitional socialism. You know, we, followers of Jesus, give rather than receive. And they care for each other. And it's beautiful. Like, to me, the local church, again, you know, is, is the only hope. Like, it's the, the kingdom of God is a beautiful thing. Uh, and it, you know, it presents, you know, the answers to the world's issues. Uh, the nation states, you know, you don't have to study history long to see that there's a lot of, you know, empty promises, a lot of broken dreams, and a lot of dead people uh, at the hands of the nation states. Well, thanks so much for sharing. Life is a journey, and yeah. we really appreciate you sharing your journey today. Well, listen, I, I like your podcast. I've been following that from afar also. I've, you know, it's a privilege to be on here, uh, but I've enjoyed uh, the people that you have on it, so thanks for your work. Certainly. Yeah. 
Anything else you want to say yet today, Josh, before we wrap this up? Jesus is king, and that's the good news. Amen. Amen. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.